1: Here's the deal with origin stories. Our participation in the present and our anticipation of the future is rooted in our appreciation and our interpretation of the past. Origins root our present and orient our future. Friends, welcome to this new teaching series called Renewed, becoming active participants in the greatest story of all. I am so excited to walk through this big story with you, the story that's been revealed through the Bible from creation into catastrophe and then on to God's rescue and redemption and the renewal of all things. I'm excited to walk through this grand epic story, this sweeping historical panorama because this is our story. This is humanity's tale. And through God's wonderful invitation, we all have a part to play In its unfolding. Today, we go right back to the start. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. Those are the very opening words to the big story. Our story and the story of the world. And it's from this initial creative action of God that everything else comes. Christians and Jews have affirmed together the foundational truth that God is the creator of all things. That's why one of our earliest creeds, the Apostles' Creed, that Christians continue to profess, open up with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. When the words in the beginning were first heard, though, the story was already in full swing. In fact, in the beginning, rung into the ears of men and women and children who had just been rescued out of crushing slavery, the nomadic family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we hear a little bit, uh, we hear about further on in the book of Genesis, they had gone down to Egypt to escape a famine. They had gone at the king's invitation so that they would survive. And hundreds of years later, they were still in Egypt. But the political winds had shifted, and now their status had changed from being welcome guests to being dangerous foreigners. And though these people had forgotten most of their own family history, and they had really lost sight of how God had made promises to their forefathers about becoming a great nation, about getting a great land, And though they were even pagans who were now worshiping whatever gods promised them the greatest advantage, God, the true God, the covenant-making promise-keeping God, he stepped into their miserable story and rescued them out of Egypt. But who was this God who had showed up at the last moment and had this big showdown with the gods of Egypt and crushed their oppressor and set them free? Nobody really knew. Few could remember the stories. Hardly anyone understood this God's character. They didn't understand his holiness, his love, his judgment. I mean, they had watched what had happened, so they realized he was powerful. But what else was true of him? Why did he do this? And what did he expect from us now? These were all questions that they had. And not only had they been rescued by this unknown God, now they'd been plopped down in front of a mountain. And through Moses, they were being told that, oh, now you are God's people. And now they must give up all their trashy false gods and their hurtful, dehumanizing ways and worship him alone. This is big news. This required a lot of reworking, a ton of reorientation, really a total transformation of their hearts and minds and lives. The story of this rescue out of Egypt and the giving of the law, that's all detailed in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which we'll come to in time. But I front-loaded that story for this one important reason. Their rescue by God came first their understanding of the God who had rescued them came after, came later. God entered into their present situation to bring them salvation. And it was only after that had happened that God begins to share with them through Moses their own origin story, including the story of their own forefathers, but reaching all the way back to the very beginning. And why? Well, knowing who God is, And who we are requires that backstory, requires the origins, where we've come from and what has led up to now. This is what we're exploring in this series. As I said at the very start, our participation in the present and our anticipation of the future is rooted in our appreciation and our interpretation of the past. And what Yahweh, that was God's personal name, what Yahweh, their deliverer God, knows is this his new people will not be able to fully worship him. They will not be able to wholly love one another. They will not be able to fully care for the land that he's now going to give them if they don't understand their story from the start, beginning with creation itself. They need to know that their deliverer isn't just the biggest, baddest, you know, God in the hood, but rather he's actually the supreme creator of the whole world the only true God. And they are not just some nation that he's scrapped together, but rather there are called out people that he has a purpose for, a purpose that they would be a light to the rest of the world. I share all of this with you because you and I, like these rescued slaves out of Egypt, we also enter into God's story at a later point too. You, like them perhaps, may have had a life-changing experience which led you to search for meaning, for purpose, which maybe led you along a path to eventually discovering Jesus. Maybe you're still exploring who Jesus is. Maybe you've already discovered and come to trust in Jesus. But when that happened, it's likely that you didn't know much about the backstory at that point. You didn't know much about what had happened before Jesus or what had led us up to that point. And being introduced to your origin story has helped you and will help you discover more. You may have had and have an acute sense of God's rescue of you, of how he has saved you through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection and receiving forgiveness and a sense of peace. But when you first got into it, it may not have been rooted in the deeper story, maybe not as rooted as it is now or as it is becoming for you now. You may have grown up with very little faith connection, but now you've come into this story through friends that have cared for you or, or maybe a chance encounter with someone who shook you up because they asked you questions that you didn't have answers to. The point of all this is this. All of us, like these rescued slaves, we find ourselves waking up in the middle of a story that's already happening. And then, and then we are needing to ask some questions like, who is this God who is offering to rescue us, who has rescued us in Jesus? Who is this God who loves me unconditionally, completely? Who is this God who wants to be in relationship with me through what Jesus has done and by the Holy Spirit? And like these ancient children of Israel rescued out of Egypt, we're invited to gather around a story, to sit down and to hear, maybe for the first time, maybe we've heard it a lot, The tale of our beginnings. And more importantly, the full story of how God, the God who rescued us in Jesus Christ, is actually the same God who created the whole world. The same God who's been working all the way through to bring all of his creation to his intended goal. Without our origin story, our participation in the present, it lacks depth. It doesn't have roots. And our anticipation of the future, it remains fuzzy and vague. Our origins are critical. Our origins root our present and orient our future. And so, like these men, women, and children seated around Sinai and hearing, shockingly, and maybe delightedly, unexpectedly, this wonderful creation story, I invite you to hear it. Whether it's for the first time or many times later, to hear your origin story and see how it might activate your participation in God's story today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And what follows is a wonderfully crafted story of the creator God bringing form to his formless world and then fullness to those empty forms with each day exuberantly topping off the next and then being capped with God's affirmation that all he had created was good, 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 good. Light, dark, waters, Land, sun, moon, stars, birds, fish, lizards, horses, hydrangeas, walnut trees. They all come crashing together in this wonderful creation. And then, right at the end of the final day, something very unique. Creatures are created who are designed to reflect the very character and creativity of their creator in all of their relationships within this sphere. The human images Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Human images of the creator God are placed in the world to reflect his loving rule over everything else. And then God sits down. At the end of the day, at the end of the week, resting like a king, having just completed his lifelong masterpiece and surveying all that he had made, calls it very good. This is the opening story of Genesis. It's the origin story to beat all origin stories. But it's not yet quite complete. You see, God wants to get at something special, particularly about these human images. Their relationship with the land, their relationship with the animals, yes, but also he wants to drill down on the nature of their relationship with each other. And so enter origin story number two found in Genesis chapter two. In this special second story, we move from a lofty artistic perspective on the whole planet to a gritty, behind-the-scenes, documentary-style series in one particular place. We come around a corner, and we find God, the master sculptor, shaping from the very dust of the ground something that looks an awful lot like mm, a man. And he breathes into this sculpted shape his own life. And this little dirtling springs up from the ground, a living soul, a living being. And then God proceeds to march this Adam. It's a kind of a play on words from the dirt, which is the Adama. He marches this Adam around, orienting him to the garden that God himself had planted and prepared for him. Setting out some parameters for his work, some permissions regarding food, and then one single prohibition. But this Adam is alone, solitary, incomplete. Unlike all the other animals around him who seem to have their counterpart, they seem to have an other to whom they can relate as equals. This living soul has no living soul mate. And God himself who had made this garden a paradise, concludes, in contrast to chapter 1, that this is, in fact, not good at all. It's not good that this man is alone. And so God creates a perfect counterpart for this Adam, working a final creative flourish by bringing a woman, an equal, a co-worker and a co-tiller and a co-ruler right out of Adam's own body, Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh to join him as his perfect other in God's good garden. The Adam, the dirtling, becomes the man and with him the woman. The united as one flesh reflecting in their own relationality, the very relationality of their creator. Diversity within unity. A oneness of relationship, yet with a distinctiveness of person. Able to be in this perfect relationship without destroying or minimizing the uniqueness of the other. Serving and loving and supporting one another as God had intended. And whereas the first story of creation concludes with the final remarks about the ease and contentedness of God himself. Satisfied with what he has done. Sits down to rest. The second story of creation ends with final remarks about the ease and contentedness of the human couple, who are naked, that is, fully exposed, fully known, and yet are without shame, fully loved, without fear. Friends, these are incredible creation stories. This is our origin story, and I invite you to dig your hands deep into the soil of Genesis 1 And two, there is so much life and meaning and understanding and power in these grounding stories. Through them, we discover that our rescuing God, we discover him more fully. We discover who we are as humans, loved by God and made for his good purposes. We uncover hints of what it means to be in relationship, not only with each other, but also with God's good creation. And there's, it's like there's clues dropped around this magical garden, like maps to hidden treasures, which will then be brought out and developed further through the rest of the story of Scripture. So many deep truths and wonderful insights are hinted at in these opening stories, which will be taken up as we proceed. But take time. I encourage you to walk through these stories, to drink deeply of them, to see yourself in them, to see our world through it and God who's created the world as well through these stories. Take your Bible outside this week into a green space or a mountain vista or just your front yard or a quiet vantage point and read aloud these stories of God's creativity and power of our fresh beginning. Wendell Berry, the poet farmer, reminds us that the Bible really is an outside book. And that reading it outside can give us a whole new appreciation and understanding of God's story. I encourage you to do that. For today, though, as we move toward our finish, I want to point us in the direction of renewal. You see, because we all enter into the story of God's rescue and renewal somewhere down the line, all of us after what Jesus did on the cross, all of us after he rose again from the dead, after the spirit has been given we have we 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 of course look back along the lines of the whole story reaching all the way back to the beginning and now tracing through the ups and the downs of the story all that god has done and is doing and so as we appreciate and interpret our own origin story we can be activated as participants in god's story now well how in at least three ways first Our origin story activates us to worship God. When the Genesis 1 and 2 stories were told and when they were first received by the children of Israel, one of the primary functions of these stories was actually to overturn idolatry. That may not stand out in the same way for us now because we're in a different culture and different space. But worshiping various aspects of the created world, whether that was the sun or the moon or animals or certain idols, that was the common accepted practice of everybody. That's who everyone was worshiping. And so, just as the first four commands of the great Ten Commandments given to them at Sinai had to do with rightly worshiping the one true God, and rejecting the worship of all these false or lesser gods, these creation stories function to root that command, to root that right worship in the origin story, in their first creation. We worship the true God who created the heavens and the earth, and we live as images in his good creation. In other words, through this story, they were taught that we, us, We don't elevate creation so that we would worship it, nor do we denigrate creation and abuse it. And all of that right perspective is rooted in our worship of God, the creator. And that's similar today. Activated for worship by our origin story helps us keep a right perspective on who God is, on who we are, and our place within God's world. And all that comes next even as we are going to move on now and consider our relationship with each other and the world, it all starts here. It all flows from here. When worship is oriented toward the true creator God, right living will follow. When worship is oriented toward false gods, or when worship is oriented toward an incomplete or faulty view of God, then right living will falter. And how does this all point to renewal? Renewal. Well, God's intention was for his human images together with all of creation was to be in right relationship with him. That's what these origin stories tell us. And in spite of our faltering and our failing ways, God's goal of that right relationship of a rightly ordered creation has never wavered. Through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, God is working toward renewal now. And we participate that in that, first of all, through worship. When we declare God's faithfulness and power and love and goodness, exalting him as the God over all and giving ourselves to him as his human images, renewal is at work in us. Renewal is at work through us. Our origin story activates us to be human images, human worshipers of the God who made us. So our application is simple. Our application is to exalt through voice, through art, through some kind of expression, through just a simple prayer to tell God who he is. Not because God doesn't know who he is, but by declaring the praises of God, we are reflecting God's goodness back to him. We are being the images we were created to be. Here's a simple challenge. Take one single item in creation this week. It could be a tree. It could be a flower. It could be a bird. It could be your own hand or the face of a loved one. Take a few minutes and focus your attention on that one thing. Notice it. See it. Try to notice everything you can about it. Really mull on it and reflect it. And then very simply, praise God for it. Praise God from it. Praise him for his creative power. Praise him for his ingenuity. The marvelous, wonderful gifts that you've received from him and he that would make it. us and invite us into that. Exalting God and praising God is one of the first ways that we're activated by our origin story. Second, our origin story activates us to love others. When Genesis 1 and 2 dropped into the middle of the story of this newly rescued people from slavery, they did not know how to live in relationship with each other. They needed a whole new understanding of what it meant to be human, of what it meant to be with each other. And much of the law that follows in Exodus, in Numbers, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy is actually a working out of exactly this, because how these people had learned to treat one another was abusive and dark. And there's a logic to this, because whenever the living true God is not being worshipped, his images are dehumanized and abused. And conversely, whenever you see people being dehumanized or abused or disregarded, that's a sure sign that idolatry is at play, that false gods are being worshiped, whether they're just mental images or they're actually, you know, literally an idol that people are bowing down to. The true God is being rejected and ignored if people are being abused. We see it in the prophets. We see it all through. Idolatry and oppression are always twinned together. In Genesis 1, the startling life-changing truth is that human beings were created in God's image. And few of us can really appreciate what a powerful change that would have been in perspective for these people. They were slaves. They were they were seen as people who were created to do the bidding of the gods or of their rulers. The only images of God in all of society, in that whole known world, were either the royal class, the kings themselves, or perhaps these cultic, uh, various cultic images that had been shaped and placed all over the world, all over the lands, to represent the gods who were in control there. And for these people, and for us, to find out that we are the images of God, more than that, we are the only images of God that are permitted to exist in all of creation. That changes everything relationally between us. It changes how we see one another, how we treat one another. When we really get this powerful truth, we begin to treat each other as God's good images. We treat another with the dignity that God has accorded us. In Genesis 2, then, we're taken more deeply into that primary relationship between the man and the woman so that we can see God's intent for this covenant union between a man and a woman and how that union was designed by God to create flourishing families, to nurture community, but also to reflect his, in his goodness. And, and it's dropped right into the middle of, of, of a people who didn't know a lot about this. And this origin story points them towards God's intention for them, helping them see how they're to live out their relationship with God right in their most basic relationship with each other. The same is true for us. Much of what's said here in these early stories about us will be developed through the rest of Scripture, leading us to understand more fully how God's relationship with us and our relationship with the others is still bound up together. Because as we hear again and again, we cannot love God if we do not truly love one another. It also highlights, in a way that seems awfully contemporary, the significance of that marriage relationship to God. That as Christians, we hold up the marriage union as an expression of God's good will for his world, that is designed to reflect His goodness, to express his relationality. that even for those of us who will never marry, you are called to singleness before God. We recognize that this core union between a man and a woman is meant to be protected and supported, because through this relationship, something of God is glimpsed expanding beyond that there's a simple yet profound affirmation that our relationality as human images are an expression of god's relationality it's only hinted at here but it's there that how we love one another points to god's own inner life where the father the son and the holy spirit live in this eternal union of perfect fellowship from all eternity and if now through the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, and the intention of the Father have drawn us in to that life. All of this points towards God's renewal and how God sets his desire for a loving world clearly from the start. And he's never changed that desire. Application number two then is support. I want to break this down into two things. But when I think of the application of support, here's my first question. What is one thing that you can do this week to support a marriage that is struggling? You may not know much of the details, and that's okay, but is there something you could do to show support, send a card, pray, ask how someone's doing? Is there something that you can do to shore up support for your own marriage if you are married? Maybe it's time to go on a longer walk, or a special date, or to put your hand to the page and write a letter or a poem. What can you do to shore up support for your own marriage? So marriage is the first one I think of for support. But the second one is, what is one thing that you can do this week to show support for a friend who is lonely? We all acknowledge that there are people among us. In particular, some of our elders, some of our single folks, um, People who are living alone and because of this time of isolation are more lonely than normal. Is there someone that you can reach out to to show support to this week? Pick up the phone. uh, Touch base in some way. Showing that support in simple ways is an expression of how our origin story activates us to love one another. Third point. Our origin story activates us in the care of creation and the creation of culture. When the children of Israel received these origin stories, along with their own family history of the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that God would give them featured large in that promise. And now... Having been rescued out of Egypt, they were being brought to this land. And their origin story, these creation stories, was part of how God wanted to shape their understanding of this land he was giving them and how they were to live in it as his images. And so, placing the Adam in a garden that God had prepared for them so that he could work it and take care of it, Placing human images in a world where they were to be fruitful and multiply to rule the land and subdue it. All of that rings off the page as a mandate for this new nation who are going now into this new garden of Eden, to their land flowing with milk and honey and producing wonderful crops. Many scholars have made the connection between these origin stories and the promised land that was now being given. It was like a new Eden complete with the warning that disobedience would lead to yet another expulsion. But I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll come to that story soon. And so, caring for God's good earth is the purpose for which these first humans were created. Ruling with care and stewarding God's world and enabling it to flourish, these are primary tasks that God gave to his human images. That is our work. And not just growing a crop or planting a tree, that of course is true, but developing human culture, which eventually would include things like art and government and architecture and trade and music and dance and technology and education. All of that is an extension of God's mandate. We're given a creation mandate to see God's good earth flourish and a cultural mandate to see the world develop in all of its good potential all of which is designed to work together for God's glory and for our good. How does this relate to renewal? Because when we see the whole arc of the scriptural story, when we arrive at the very end, right in the final chapters of the book of Revelation, we discover a garden again, but this time set in a grand city. We discover that all of creation and all of culture's best offerings are being presented to God for his glory and for our good. And so we participate in his intention for the whole world by being renewed now, by pursuing the care of creation and the creation of culture even now as his image bearers. And so our final application for today is to attend. What is one way that you can pay more attention to God's mandate of care. It could be growing in knowledge of the natural world around you, learning to name birds or flowers or trees. Uh, It could be developing an artistic talent. It could be learning to take better photographs. It could be making something beautiful around your yard. It could be working with your hands. It, It could be learning more about a particular people or a particular group. I don't know what it is for you, but what is one way that you could pay more attention to the mandate that God gave for us to care and to develop the world he's given to us. Friends, let's wrap it up with this. We've been given a most wonderful origin story in the book, in the Bible. An origin story that activates us into God's ongoing story. And Genesis 1 and 2, they set a trajectory for us so that looking back and looking forward, And seeing Jesus in the center of it all, we can more fully participate in God's story of renewal right now. That's my hope and my prayer for you as we continue in this greatest story of all.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.